0: And now let us continue with our analysis. We are in the Yoga Sutra, Chapter 3, this most colorful and thrilling Chapter 3. We are drawing near to the end of this chapter. Last time when we spoke about the Yoga Sutra, I commented, I reached with a commentary to the Sutra number 44. In the Sutra number 43, Patanjali had started describing a difficult, complex Samyama, on the five different levels and sub-levels of the elements of and so that one can thus conquer the elements and I've explained those things there and the sutra number 44 was describing effects it says from the control over the five elements there results some characteristics out of which one was not very well explained. The three characteristics described in Sutra number 44 were uh, anima, etc., which means the eight paranormal powers, perfection of the body, and non-obstruction from elements. And the Sutra number 45, to which we go now, uh, is taking some time to explain what is this perfection of the body, because this is can be interpreted as a very superficial concept and Patanjali wants to make sure that it is well understood. That is why in the Sutra number 45 we just continue a little bit the idea from the Sutras 43 and 44 and Patanjali says the perfection of the physical body consists or can be translated as beauty, irresistible grace, power, and diamond-like hardness or endurance. This is a very philosophical way it would worth, it would be worth a meditation for each one of these concepts. However, they do not describe a technology, a profoundness in technology. That is why I will leave you the pleasure to go into them. For example, when Patanjali says a certain practice like that one, will develop among others, if you have control over the five elements, this will result in perfection of of the body, which is basically defined as um, beauty, irresistible, grace, and so on. These are very, very big standards in Indian metaphysics and Indian philosophy. For example, beauty is a concept which is almost abstract for some people. Beauty, Sundaram, is one of the characteristics of God. God Himself is the archetype for beauty in Hindu mysticism. God is defined by the three words, Shivam, Satyam, Sundaram, goodness, truthfulness, and beauty. And therefore, this beauty... To which uh, Patanjali refers here, it is a beauty which refers to the divine beauty, a beauty like that of God. In the Western culture we don't have the same understanding, that's why when you translate you automatically kill meanings, you assassinate them, because in the Western culture we even use the expression in Christian theology which would be called the beauty of the devil. The devil can make himself beauty to seduce you, to lure you into temptation. While in Indian mysticism they would say that's not true, that is not a real beauty. It's a false beauty the, if it's the beauty of the devil. So how would you make the distinction? That is why the concept of Sundara, Sundaram, this beauty, is not translatable exactly by the English word beauty in the which has the value which it has in the context of the Western culture. The word beauty which Patanjali himself uses is a word which means rather harmony. For example, the devil is beautiful or can pretend to be beautiful, can take a beautiful appearance but will never be harmonious because harmony means something much more. It means the complete attuning, synchronization with all the rhythms of the universe and with all the spheres of the universe. And that is why in the moment when Patanjali uses a word like beautiful and he says uh, to explain this perfection of the body alluded to in the previous sutra is made of beauty slash harmony, we would say for a better translation in English. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is another obsessive motive which appears in the Indian mystical literature. Many yoga techniques are supposed to provide irresistible grace. The practitioner is compared very often with Kamadeva, which is the Indian equivalent for Eros or the God of Love in the Greek uh, Western mythology. And uh, therefore, one has irresistible grace. Yogic texts say, when the yogi is practicing uh, Sitkarin Pranayama or I don't know what, he becomes charming like the God of love and he is able to charm the whole world, which is going, of course, beyond the God of Eros, because it's not about the sexual seduction. The sexual seduction is only... Uh, lower application of this, but there would exist a seduction of a higher level, where one becomes simply graceful, charming, irresistible. You read the Arabic literature like the thousand and one nights, and they describe a beautiful man from the standpoint of another man, and he says, they say, this man was so handsome, his face was like the full moon, or something like this. They basically describe a beauty which is adorable beyond the sex or no sex factor, but of course the sex factor will have a function as soon as you get it mixed up with sex. And that is why this irresistible grace is a function which is much higher. Again, we are just explaining factors so you understand how the mind of these people was working. In the previous Sutra, therefore, they were saying if you do the mastery of the five elements, you get the f- the eight paranormal powers, perfection of the body, which we analyze now, and non-obstruction from the elements, which means there will be no blockage of any kind in the five elements of the universe, which is very equivalent to the eight Mahasiddhis, actually. But anyhow, it's the same thing put from a negative standpoint. And therefore, now we are going to 45 and we analyzed already, these are very big standards that one is acquiring beauty. You can look at different great yogis and see what kind of beauty we are talking about. Because it's like the traditional yoga says, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Mananda Mai, Um, Sarada Devi, Ramana Maharishi, Yogananda Paramahamsa, Swami Shivananda, Swami Vivekananda and all the others you know very well the name of the great heroes, at least of modern times in yoga, for whom we have photos and more realistic descriptions of their lives. And then we would say according to such a text like the Yoga Sutra they had all reached beauty. Now, I don't know if they, if we put all of them into a beauty contest, I don't know how many of them are truly, truly beautiful. And yet when you look at Ramana Maharishi, when you look at the eyes of Shivananda and so you see in all of them a certain type of beauty. There is a certain type of beauty which is not a bodily beauty. It is exactly like Byzantine icons are beautiful. And yet if you look at an icon of the Virgin Mary or Jesus in the Byzantine painting, they don't really outline a physical beauty like the photo models from our times. They outline a beauty which is a mystical beauty. It's a magic beauty. You, if you look at the Byzantine icons, the hand of Virgin Mary which is very often Held like this because she's holding Jesus in her arm. This hand of Jesus, of, of Virgin Mary, looks really like a concentration camp hand. It's like thin and the fingers are disproportionately long. It's almost like a ghostly image. And yet people looking at the, Virgi, of the Virgin icon, one of these Byzantine eye, golden icons, would say, oh my God, how beautiful. That beautiful is not the beauty of the flesh. It's not the beauty which you would see in a sex magazine where also you can see a beautiful woman naked and in all honesty say, Wow, what a beauty. That is one beauty and this is another type of beauty. They all fall under the concept of beauty. The beauty of Ramana Maharishi is a beauty more like the beauty of the Byzantine icon, not like the beauty of a beauty contest, of a pageant contest. And therefore, this beauty to which it refers, is this uh, it, we would call it an internal beauty, but it is a little bit of an overly abused term, because uh, it is ironized often, uh, that uh, actually this internal beauty, oh, I'm beautiful inside, but outside I'm hideous actually, <coughs> it is meant to create a sort of, it's a defense mechanism, it's a politically correct statement very often. <coughs> we don't have time to go there, Fact is that Patanjali felt the need so that people will not become misguided. (coughs) Look, the yogis in the Sutra number 44, they run for the eight Mahasiddhis, for the eight powers. They run for perfection of the body. Also, these people were body fanatics. Actually, the yogis, Patanjali himself and all the others, they were never body fanatics. So when they speak about perfection of the body with its qualities, beauty, grace and others, They do not refer to beauty in the same way in which we refer. Beauty refers to this spiritual beauty, which you can see in the eyes of the great spiritual masters, that you look at them and say, you say, this is a very beautiful human being. It's not necessarily a beautiful human being by the features, but the beauty is still there. And then irresistible grace in the mystical literature, because that's where I had stopped. Irresistible grace, for example, in some texts, They paraphrase it and they say, the yogi who reaches this level of consciousness has an eloquent speech, a great oratoric and poetic power and can charm and convince anybody with their words. It's not a charm by the body, it's a charm by the speech, by the words as well. So when it says irresistible grace, it's almost like a sort of charismatic power. It's exactly like Jesus is ultimately charismatic. That grace, that charm, that everybody looking at that man has two chances. Either saying, wow, what a divine man this is, or crucifying him. It doesn't go between them. It's like you, you may simply not want to disregard that this man is charism- charismatic and charming. So this irresistible grace is an irresistible grace, which again, it doesn't come from an outer beauty. It's an irresistible grace, which manifests in the way you speak. In a way you move the body in the presence, it's more like a very, very convincing type of presence. Power, power translated by some authors like fitness, like power in the meaning that of course there needs to be, when we define perfection of the body, we would want to have it active. If somebody would have a beautiful body and charming but would lie down on a stretcher paralyzed, it is obvious that one of the perfections of the body would be missing, it would not be complete. So it needs to have, not that it should have, a paranormal power. It doesn't say disproportionate power, it doesn't say abnormal power, it just says power. That there should exist this power which is illustrated ultimately in the theories of yoga and tantra by the concept of ojas the preservation of the sexual energy is the one which traditionally gives power. Patanjali himself mentioned earlier that by the practice of Brahmacharya, one reaches Virya which is translated as power among others. And therefore, this power here, it is related nevertheless with the brilliance, with the shining produced by the non-loss of the sexual energy. So when Patanjali says, Perfection of the body actually is explained as this, this, this. The concept of power means a certain internal shining which is produced by the conservation of the sexual energy by Brahmacharya. Under this extraordinary inner brilliance, some yogis have been reported of developing even paranormal power, which is not always the case because Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, although he was a perfect Brahmachari, he never demonstrated any exceptional ability in terms of physical strength, but some yogis did, like Swami Dayananda, one of the famous uh, sadhus of India 150 years ago, one of the reformers of modern Hinduism, he was a brahmachari and he demonstrated at one or two occasions some abnormal power, of the, although he was not of great physical size or bulk, he was not looking like a strong man, and yet he was having a definitely abnormal, even paranormal, power. And therefore, here there are various degrees, but Patanjali refers to it in a decent way. Like, if you conserve your sexual energy and you are a brahmachari, your ojas is radiant, and then you are having power. Your body has power, in the meaning that it is vital, healthy, in the normal ways. Again, taking account of the the modifications brought to the body, with age. And finally, diamond-like hardness, diamond-like endurance. This is another essential concept. All those of you who read some Indian mystical literature, texts like Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Giranda Samhita and the likes, you have encountered all these comparisons with beauty, grace, power, okay, more referring to Oja as the sexual energy, and now the comparison with diamond, that your body becomes like diamond. What is this? How can you compare diamond with the body? What has diamond got to do with the body? Everybody in this school learns what it has to do. Already in the second week of yoga when you learn Vajrasana, the diamond pose, which contains in it exactly this concept. Vajra, the diamond, is a very very complex symbol in Indian yoga. It means at the same time lightning or thunderbolt and it is like the Vajra of the Buddhist, the Dorje, of the Tibetan Buddhists. It's a masculine symbol, it's a symbol of the mind. Vajra or Dorje, the diamond or the thunder, is a symbol of the hyper-awakened mind. Mind is hard as diamond, pure as diamond, sharp as diamond, indestructible as diamond, and at the same time, strong as lightning and fast as lightning. And therefore, this is an epithet of the mind, And when you say the body is like the diamond, everybody who studies yoga, and that's a conference which you get early in the yoga courses in this school, refers to a very mystical accomplishment, which the Indian yogis have called the diamond body. The Tibetans, for example, don't call it the diamond body, they call it the rainbow body. And the essence of this, I will not bother to go into the details of this tradition here, because this is taught extensively in our yoga courses. So I don't need to take time here with that. The essence of it is that the diamond body or a rainbow body is a body which is alchemically sublime because of the descent of the mind into the body, because the mind doing samyama, because the mind taking knowledge or awareness of the body, the substance of the body may transform. It does transform. And it becomes to such an extent that actually the energy out of which the body is made, because ultimately we are made of atoms, which are made of elementary particles, which are nothing else but waves of energy, waves of electromagnetic energy. Therefore, um, the body is made of light, while it is literally true for every person in this room that the body, your body, as well as mine, is made of light, because it is made of electromagnetic waves, and electromagnetic waves, electrons, and the other elementary particles are electromagnetic waves according to quantum mechanics, and thus your body is made of electromagnetic waves, out of which light are just a fraction, visible light. But in a generalized understanding, since we are all made of electromagnetic waves, packages of waves, bunches of electromagnetic waves, we can say, if we push the envelope, if we stretch the meanings a little bit, that we are actually made of light. However, this saying doesn't solve the problem because when in the moment when you take a hammer and you blow your finger all your beliefs about the fact that you are made of light will fade away and you'll scream in agony and you'll bleed and you'll have broken bones and therefore the fact that you intellectually know that you are made of light doesn't save the day. You have to do more than just intellectually acknowledge that you are made of light. This kind of faith, absolute faith, you believe You realize, you acknowledge that you are made of light as much as you acknowledge that you are alive or that the law of gravitation draws you to the earth. When you have that kind of degree of faith, of belief, then automatically one can control something in the structure of the body. Your body is like alchemically transmuted to the neighbors and to your friends, it looks the same. But to you from inside, it looks different because now you know in the real meaning of the word to know, you know experientially that you are made of light. And if you are made of light, for example, you can switch yourself off for 10 seconds, which means if you truly would realize that you are made of light, you would be able to make yourself invisible for 10 seconds or dematerialize in one corner of the hall and rematerialize in the other corner of the hall. That would be indeed the diamond body. This is a realization which is at the same time spiritual and at the same time it is a high-class Siddhi, it is a high-class paranormal ability and it is extremely rare even in yoga. Even great yogis, great spiritually realized yogis like Ramana Maharishi or Shiva Ananda did not have the nerve or the cheek to state that they had reached the diamond body because their behavior and some of the things in their life showed that they didn't push there. It doesn't mean that they were less enlightened, that they were not good as spiritual masters. They were very good where they were, but they were not necessarily having every possible conceivable CD or uh, accomplishment. And therefore, here Patanjali, when he says, he, as you can see, he speaks gradually, he defines what the yogis understand by perfection of the body. This. Beauty with harmony, this is a real beauty, this divine beauty, which would be considered a spiritual beauty. This charm irradiating, which is a sort of charismatic ultimate presence. This power, which is ojas, the control over the sexual energy so that the vitality stays radiant. And last but not least, if you push it to the ultimate limit, the diamond body that the body becoming indestructible or hard as the diamond. This is a metaphor which the connoisseurs in yoga understand very easily because it's used frequently that your body, if you do this and this pranayama or asana or this, your body will turn into diamond. It's not a literal statement, it's a statement which is metaphorical and it refers to this mystical tradition of the diamond body or, Tibetan, the rainbow body. And this being said, let us go further, this was a warming up Sutra, because here Patanjali just continued trying to explain, and it is perhaps good for you to see what the yogis saw in what they would call perfections at the level of the body. See the perfection at the level of the physical reality. And then we are moving therefore to the Sutra number 46. And in the Sutra number 46, Patanjali is doing again a very beautiful trick. He resumes an old idea in another way and thus he shows us a thing which could be called same-same but different. He shows us one of the same ideas taken before but presented from a different angle and thus he shows a different nature of this discipline of the mind. Let's first go through the Sutra. The Sutra says, mastery over the sense organs is gained by Samyama on, and there follows a list, on the act of cognition, real nature, ego sense, correlative state, and causality. I will not bother to tell you the five words which he uses for uh, those things, act of cognition, real nature, ego sense, correlative state, and causality, They are all difficult Sanskrit words. They are moreover rather twisted Sanskrit words, metaphorical, poetical, used in very allusive ways. And anyhow, for Patanjali, they are symbolic. Patanjali is very smart and he is not telling directly what he wants to say. It is for this reason that this sutra is again one of the very twisted ones. I have seen at least 10 commentaries on this Sutra, which were different from each other completely. Like the attempt to understand this psychologically. Let's take it psychologically, neurologically, psychomentally, psychosomatically, whichever way you want. Here it is, you can gain master over the sense organs. What are the sense organs? The five senses, right? And we have the sense organs, Okay, we are maybe speaking about the passive sense organs, but that concept is very, very uh, twisted itself in the Indian literature, because Patanjali here uses the word Indriya, and Indriya is a, an umbrella for two categories. They are Karmendriya and Jnanendriya, the Indriyas of Karma and the Indriyas of Jnana or Knowledge. That's something which you all learn in the regular yoga courses in day 3, in the morning lecture, that the chakras are related with the Indriyas, and Indriyas is again a double category. So here Patanjali doesn't use in Sanskrit the word uh, Jnanendriyas or Karmendriyas. Here Patanjali says Indriyas, and he says you can get mastery over the Indriyas by practicing Samyama on blah 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 blah. Okay, let's go first, let's start first with the beginning of the sentence. So you get mastery over the Indriyas. But what are the Indriyas? There are five Karmendriyas, there are five Gyanendriyas, and they are nothing else but symbols for the functions of the five chakras, of the first five chakras, again and again the first five chakras, which are the symbols of the five elements. Muladhara chakra for the earth, Svadhisthana chakra for the water, Manipura chakra for the fire, Anahata chakra for the air and Vishuddha chakra for the Akasha or the fifth element and therefore the whole universe, the human being being made out of the five elements one is gaining mastery over the Indriyas which Indriyas? If they are the five Karmendriyas the five Karmendriyas are the anus the genitals, the feet and the legs, the hands and the arms and last the the vocal strings, the vocal apparatus. And the gyanandriyas are the nose, the tongue, the eyes, the skin and the sexual organs, and finally the hearing apparatus, the ear internal and external, and all the hearing apparatus. And therefore, what are we talking about? What is perfection of the indriyas? Perfection of the indriyas is a very, very... uh, vague concept because perfection of the Indriyas would mean well if you have perfection of the Indriyas of the Gyan Indriyas it's like you have the most complex form of clairvoyance one who is having perfection of the Indriya of, of sight illustrated by the eyes related to Manipura Chakra in classical yoga. Again, for some of you it can sound confusing, but attend the third day of yoga. It's an elementary lecture in the morning, and those should be clear. Those are ABC things in yoga, that for the yogis the eyes are related to Manipura, the skin is related to Anahata, the vocal strings are related to Vishuddha, and so on. That information is so basic that I am not going to start now making that table and going into that. So I hope you remember, if you don't remember, go back to your course papers and see, it's very clearly put there. And coming back to our story, therefore perfection of the sense organs, if I have just the perfection of one sense organ, the sight, the so-called eye, it means I'm a clairvoyant, I see and since I have perfection of the sight, it means I can see remote, like remote viewing is a form of of obsidian of that. I can at the same time see what cannot be seen with the eye, such as the aura, the energy field surrounding the body of human beings. I can see the invisible spirits of nature, which live in another dimension, like I can see the fairies, the gnomes, and all kind of invisible entities existing in the parallel universes. I can see why not the gods, the devas, living in the world of the gods, and therefore this would be clairvoyance. And for each of the five senses, it is the same. But at the same time, wait a second, these are not the only Indriyas, these are only the Jnana Indriyas, the jnanendriyas But at the same time we're having the Karmendriyas, and the Karmendriyas are the organs for generating karma, and therefore with them I can act, I can have subtle action. That is why perfection over the, over the sense organs is a very tricky way because in yoga everybody knows that these indriyas, these sense organs, either karmendriyas or jnanendriyas are related to the five elements actually. All of them, all the indriyas are related to the five elements, either in karmendriya or in jnanendriya And therefore when Patanjali says mastery over the sense organs, he actually says mastery over the five elements, but we had that before. That's why I'm saying Patanjali resumes, but now he puts it in a psychological way from the standpoint of the sense organs, because he wants to show a different angle. If I say you have mastery over the fire, like I said in the previous lecture, uh Saint Francis of Assisi had such a faith which had led to him to such a control over the five elements that he had the absolute faith that fire cannot burn him. And therefore he had reached control at least over one element, over the fire element. And therefore, uh, this being said, um, control over the element, when I say this person has reached control over the fire element, control over the air element, control over... That sounds in a certain way, but if I'm saying this person has reached control over this sense organ or over this sense organ, I'm saying the same. Anybody who has reached control over the fire element is automatically a clairvoyant because the eye, the vision, the sight is just a sense and a function and organs which are subordinated to the fire element, and therefore to have control over fire, it means also to have control over the sense organs of fire, either passive or active. And therefore in the moment when Patanjali comes and says, I will teach you how to reach mastery over the Indriyas, mastery over the sense elements, he basically tells you, I will teach you how to gain control over the five elements. Only, it's like I changed the angle and I'm looking at the whole problem from another angle. Now I'm bringing forth another item, another issue, and in this way you are going to see another effect of this. And to demonstrate that it is so, it's very beautiful, because it says mastery over the sense organs is gained by Samyama On, and now he presents the levels of the five elements, Exactly the same five, five levels, there are five words here, and each one of them is a symbol of the sub-levels of the elements. Those of you who have finished their fourth month in this school, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a very sophisticated theory, which you'll get to learn in yoga, about the real structure of the elements in the universe, with levels and sub-levels, which cannot be put here simply because it is way too vast and it would not allow me to finish not even one sutra in commentary. So since this is part of the curriculum of the school, again, I refer to it, but uh, here I'm just going to say, to make the point from the standpoint of Patanjali. And therefore Patanjali says to reach mastery over the five elements, over the sense organs as symbols of the five elements, it's the same ultimately you have to do samyama on five stages, exactly as on the elements, you have to do samyama on the physical, etherical, astral and so on stages of the elements, because the elements are manifested at all the levels, exactly in the same way here, he describes it in a more psychological way, from the standpoint of the process of cognition. If you do not understand the chakras and the bodies and the elements and all the things which I spoke about, which are so clear in the Tantric tradition, you get messed up completely because these things, these five words which come, you have to make samyama on the act of cognition, real nature, ego sense, correlative state, and causality. It's like, what? How would you make samyama on uh, the act of cognition Real real nature of what? Real nature just as an abstract concept. Ego sense. What has the ego sense got to do with all this? Correlative state. What is a correlative state? And finally causality. What has the causality got to do with with the sense organs? Like whatever sense organ, all of them together. This is puzzling people. Verify me on this, and you are going to see that commentaries done on the Yoga Sutra. They get completely berserk when they get to this one, because it is so very intricate. It's like, um, uh, first you are having the act of cognition. The act of cognition can be psychologically, and psychosomatically, and neurologically, and whatever, Expl- be explained like this, and this, and this. And what is the real nature? Well, we can speculate the real nature of the perceived object is this and that. The real nature of the perceiver is this and that. And then we have to add to this equation the ego sense. Who am I in the middle of this act of... And not who am I at the level of the self, but who am I at the level of the ego sense, at the level of mental personality into this act of perception. How do these all blend? And then on top of it, there appears a correlative state in which pff, things are kind of correlated to each other. they are links, and then there appears causality, which is the subject of a PhD thesis already. And therefore, how are you going to make samyama on all this? What does it mean? It means gibberish. It's like the mind If you don't put a structure in the mind, like the mind is made of this and this, there are these energies, these levels, these chakras, these elements, this and that, then it makes no sense because mind is like a labyrinth. Mind is like a huge, huge world and you can run through things in your mind and you are half asleep and drowsy and confused in some stunned and stoned meditation, and somebody is asking you, what are you meditating on? What's your meditation? And you say, I'm meditating on the correlative state and ego sense. <laughs> These are all just words in yoga, at least in this school, we'd never accept such thing, we'd consider it rubbish. If I would ask you, let's make people, let's make tonight a wonderful meditation on the correlative state and the sense of ego. It's like, where to start from? These are just words. What does it mean? How do we meditate on the correlative state and the sense of ego? It's a nonsense. I have met people trying to exemplify, like I'm going to show you what the correlative state is. And behold, it just became a caricatural game of imagination where people would imagine that they felt and it was just a mental chaos of the first order, all in all. And people... Given such uh, incredible exemplifications, six months later they were unable to do anything of all this. It didn't leave any trace, it didn't leave like they would say, oh yesterday I was with the teacher or with that guy in a workshop or something, and I had a very one, I felt very good, I meditated. But then if you ask him what can you do, six months later, what can you do? Have you got something from this? People who work on the chakras, they can do things, they learn how to do things. Some very advanced, very stubborn practitioners can do a lot, some can do less if they practice less and if they are more lazy with their practice, but people can do, at least you can get out of a depressive mood or you can get out of I don't know what, you can change your psychology, you can do a lot of things, but this kind of formulation in which i'm taking the mind straightforwardly i'm taking it in the chest like we're having to have to make some yama on some very important things of the mind the act of cognition the real nature the ego sense the correlative state and the causality this is like chinese you know it's like what are you talking about and it's it will make you lost in all kinds of labyrinths of the mind What Patanjali is actually saying, and you can see he is smart, because if he indeed would be himself caught in this labyrinth of the mind, he wouldn't have used five words. He would have used for the description of this six words, or four words. It's too much of a coincidence that both here and in the Sutra number 43, where he talks about the same thing, he every time uses just five words. He says in the Sutra number 43, by samyama on the gross, basic, subtle, correlative, and purposive states of the elements, mastery over them is obtained. Why are there five stages of the elements? It's obvious because there are five bodies in yoga, and therefore there are five levels of everything. So in the moment in the Sutra number 46, when he comes back, not coincidentally, he takes again the sense organs as symbols of the five elements. And he says, if you want to reach mastery of the sense organs, indriyas, which is such a foggy concept, you would have to make some yama on the five different stages. And basically, again, he tells us the same thing. Try to see, the fifth of them is called causality. Everybody can see that that refers to the causal body, and it is an undeniable connection. The fourth of them refers to the. It is called here in this translation, which I use. <coughs> it is the correlative state. But if we go back to the sutra number forty-three, I read again: by making samyama on the gross, basic, subtle, correlative, and then purposive, uh, fifth. So correlative comes four in that list. It comes four in this list. It shows automatically that it show it relates to Vijnana Mayakosha, to the mental body, because it is at the level of the mind that we are having the correlative state. We are making correlations, the mind correlates. It just puts things together and creates correlations. And that is why, here, as you can see, the correspondence is perfect. The third stage he calls Ego Sense, which actually is funny, because it would refer to the astral body. But the astral body is the one which most often gives the emotions, the sense of ego, and so on. It also correlates to Manipura chakra, the third chakra, which is the chakra of the ego and of the most developed. So it's not a coincidence that the ego sense, it's put third, corresponding to both those realities. And then, for the first ones, it's not so clear, but everybody who got the point understands. This man is again mentioning the five stages of nature, physical, etheric, astral, mental, and causal. And therefore, he says, for obtaining, for mastery over the five senses, you have to make samyama over the physical part of that sense, the etherical part of that sense, the astral part of that sense, and mental and causal. Therefore, there is a physical sight, there is an etheric sight, There exists an astral sight, of course, that being astral clairvoyance. There is a mental sight, which is an even higher form of clairvoyance, relative to remote viewing and high levels of clairvoyance. And there exists even a causal sight, which refers to karma and such other things. And therefore, uh, to make the long story short, here we have a list of exactly the five same stages and only that this time it is applied to the sense organs. That's the mystery of this beautiful Sutra, in which Patanjali describes another Samyama on the five elements, and on their, on their five stages, thus speaking about the mastery of the five elements, but this time presented as mastery of the sense organs. If I'm saying mastery, you have mastery of fire, you understand something. If I say you have mastery over the sense of sight and over locomotion, which is, again, Manipura, related to the sense of sight and to locomotion because it is related to the legs and to the feet. And therefore, mastery over that can mean all kinds of crazy things, as you will see that the next sutra actually shows it in extension. Like if I have perfection of the sight, I can see your body, I can see through your body, and I can see your energy field and your diseases, I can see your aura and your emotions and your psychological traumas, I can see through the mind and I can see things of the mind, I can get any form of knowledge, correlative knowledge, and finally I can see causally and I can understand destiny, becoming enlightenment, enlightenment, karma and all the things which derive from that. And therefore, the mastery over the sight is telling me more although it speaks about the same thing but it clarifies the subject and if i have mastery over the karmendriya of the manipura chakra which is the leg and the foot and locomotion it means i can go i can walk i can go physically but i can also project astrally from manipura chakra i can project astrally via the silver cord and therefore i can travel people who have physical locomotion can move can walk fast for example or run and this is a physical city like the tibetan lungompas who would run in a state of trance but people who have another level of manipura chakra they can have remote travel or they can project astrally and they can go like Immanuel swedenborg of sweden They can go to other planets in their astral body and visit other planets of our solar system and why not even our other solar systems. And therefore, you understand more about what means perfection of the five elements, mastery over the five elements, because Patanjali has resumed the subject beautifully and has shown other aspects, this time from the standpoint of the Indriyas, but ultimately he speaks about the same subject after all. And he continues with the effects, of course, in the Sutra number 47. And he says, Therefrom follows speed like that of the mind, freedom from any medium of instrumentality, and mastery over the primordial cause, which is conquest of the limitations of Prakriti, will understand. Therefore, I put here a comment for you. By becoming master of your sense organs, This is not the Sutra, I'm giving you a comment and then I'll explain. By Master, becoming Master of your sense organs, the great qualities which developed are, let's take them again as he put them in the Sutra, attainment of speed of the mind, that is actually the mental projection, the Maha-Videha, which was explained earlier, capacity to function without any instrument, we'll see in a second what that becomes, and complete control over Prakriti because if you control the primordial cause of all elements you control the nature. The yogin then sees without eyes and moves without legs like in clairvoyance or like in astral projection. He does not require the instrumentality of any cognitive or motor organ. He transcends the Indriyas completely. This is the meaning of this terminology. So basically here Patanjali says the same in the Sutra number 44 from last conference. He said, if you master the five elements, there results the appearance of anima, etc., which means the eight paranormal powers, perfections of the body, which we clarified today, and non-obstruction from any element. And today, describing the same phenomenon, the mastery over the five elements, but from the standpoint of a different zooming angle, he says, so, if you master the five elements, or otherwise said the five act, the organs, the sensory organs, the indriyas you have speed like that of the mind, which, which simply means anything can happen instantaneously, freedom from instrumentality, as I said, that the actual instruments which we know are just a physical symbol, We physically believe that we need eyes to see, but there are people who see with their eyes closed. There are people who see with their palm or with different organs. And therefore, uh, it is freedom from instrumentality. When you see something in another world, you don't see it with the eyes. And finally, mastery over the first cause, which means if you have such a power to control over the five elements, through and through, in all their aspects, including this aspect of sensory organs, sensoriality, this means control over Prakriti. And that's why I said, when you finally rise above the five elements and transcend them, you reach actually to the sixth element, the mind, which is the one which generates the eight Mahasiddhis, the eight great powers and all the other accomplishments. So basically here Patanjali-like resumed the same subject twice in Sutra forty three forty four 44 and in 46-47 but telling us the same thing in two different ways and thus you can understand much better the prize which he is offering for this Samyama. A Samyama for conquering the five elements and thus the nature in its totality. Then in number 48 he moves Further, by knowledge of the awareness of difference between Sattva and Purusha, or Atman, comes supremacy over all states and forms of existence and omniscience. I will first give you a short written commentary, which I put here, and then I will give you a resume, a a resuming of the Sutra with full explanations. Emphasis is laid upon the fact that the distinction becomes very difficult in the borderline area between Prakriti and Purusha. Sattva being the highest of the gunas, of the tendencies of Prakriti, is therefore illustrative for this situation. I made a long commentary over this in another sutra in a previous lecture because Patanjali has alluded to this Difficult problem in spirituality. Once more, he made the allusion to the difference between Sattva and Purusha. This is a difference and I will not therefore not resume the whole whole commentary. Uh, I am referring you to that part of the commentary where I extensively spoke about this. Because that's one of the biggest problems of spirituality. I resume just the main idea for those of you who haven't been and you need to understand the point. The point is that nature is made of two parts, Purusha and Prakriti. Purusha is the transcendent spirit, the void, the non-manifestation, called in Vedanta Atma or Atman, and Prakriti is the nature, the manifestation with all its energies, all the chakras, all the energies of the body, of the mind, of the psyche, all the energies of this universe are part of Prakriti. And, in, and Prakriti is divided in gross, heavy energies and higher and higher energies the highest types of energy in the universe are grouped under the umbrella of a category. In in, the, in Indian language, in Sanskrit, these categories are called gunas, and they are a big, big subject in classical yoga. Even Bhagavad Gita extensively mentions the three gunas. And one of these three gunas, the highest of them, is called sattva. Sattva being the category of harmony, light, luminosity, balance, wisdom, and it's symbolized by the color white and it is therefore the very principle of wisdom. In spirituality, not only in Indian spirituality, but Indian spirituality is very peculiar about this, especially the traditionalistic type of spirituality, the Vedic type of spirituality, you have to be a sattvic person, you have to behave in sattvic way, you have to dress sattvically very important, you have to eat sattvic food, you have to behave sattvically, and sattvically means balanced, harmonious, nice, moderate. It's something which is very moderate and wise, and temperate in a certain way. It's exactly a little bit like the temperate climate. You have tropical equatorial climate at one end, polar northern climate at the other end, and temperate climate in the middle. Sattva is exactly like temperate climate. It is neither too much of this nor too much of that. And therefore, to make the long story short, Sattva is considered to be the highest of the qualifications if you are not a Sattvic person, especially in Indian spirituality. If you are not a Sattvic person, there is very little possibility or probability that actually you are a spiritual person. However, different sects radical sects in hinduism like the agoris and other extreme tantric sects as well as in other forms of world spirituality they denied this they simply said the fact that you are in the cosmic egg highest place like among the higher energies doesn't mean that you actually got purusha the transcendent the transcendent is transcendent and to reach the transcendent I don't know if you understand. The transcendent is like the sky, the sky in the meaning of the principle, heavens, the kingdom of heaven. Nobody would say that it is more easy to reach the kingdom of heaven if you are at the 10th floor of your building than if you are at the ground floor of your building. Even if you are at the lower floor of the building or at the middle of the building or at the top of the building, the sky, the kingdom of heaven, is as distant for everybody. That is why some schools of spirituality, they say it doesn't matter if you are tamasic, rajasic or sattvic because purusha is as equally distant from all three of those because purusha represents the transcendent nature of spirit and it is not related with the qualities which you have in manifestation. I don't fully agree with such a radical statement. I think the Vedic culture was very wise when it said that while you go to Purusha, meanwhile take care of your guna as well. It would be better to be a sattvic person in your quest for Purusha. Because if you don't reach Purusha, at least when you die, you will die as a sattvic person and you will have a better karma and a better outcome the life of a sattvic person is much more mild, like the middle part of the Buddha, it's much more mild and balanced and harmonious and wise than the life of a very rajasic or of a very tamasic person. Rajas and tamas are the other two gunas who are fraught with difficulties, obscurity, obstacles, pain and all kinds of other similar things. And that is why, while it is true that Purusha Atman, the Supreme Spirit, the Supreme Self is transcendent and it is not facilitated by Sattva, Rajas or Tamas, nevertheless I still recommend to the pupils of this school that they should cultivate Sattva as much as possible because in the big picture, at least while you haven't reached the ultimate nature, uh, Sattvic nature will be preferable. And that is why Uh, In Indian spirituality, they say you better be sattvic and then hopefully one day you will make the great leap from sattva to purusha, to the transcendent. But until then, you will not be tormented by rajasic or tamasic samskaras, states of mind. However, Patanjali here comes and says, be careful, however, sattva and purusha are not the same. This has become so institutionalized in the Indian spirituality that some people may believe that if you are sattvic, you are enlightened. A sattvic person is not enlightened. A sattvic person is just sattvic. Enlightenment means to have access to a transcendent state of spirit which is beyond sattva, rajas or tamas. And therefore, it's difficult because a person who is sattvic It can be, for example, like a god. And Patanjali says, even a very refined god is not divine, has not reached the transcendent spirit. And therefore, you have to make distinction. It is very important to say, this is a quality of sattva, and this is a quality of divinity. For example, it can be that many religious rules and regulations are meant to make the culture, the civilization, the society, sattvic. Example, perhaps if you, the old Jewish injunction, which says you have to respect the Sabbath. Every seven days, take one day rest, because else you become a workaholic. There would be people who in their ambition to get more, to do more, to accomplish more, they would hold no Sunday. They would just go or whatever the Sabbath day is for the Jews was Saturday. So the the seventh day, this famous seventh day, you have to hold it and you have to hold it and you have to hold it. Even if you say, oh, today it seems I'm wasting time. I could do some work. No. Take a day to think to you of yourself. Take a day to think of God. Take a break in the middle of all this whirlwind of the world and try to think of your spirit and therefore this is a measure which is somewhat sattvic it's not tamasic because it doesn't say you should have seven weekends per week that's tamasic that would be just lazy all my life is just a long weekend i'm not working at all then i am just a lazy person or the workaholic the greedy person who has no sunday or Sabbath if you want in the jewish way again so basically then I'm ultra rajasic my ambition is so big that the world is not enough I want more 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 and this is a rule which kind of tempers them it says not too late li- not too much laziness but not too much work either there is a midpoint and this midpoint would say every seven days take a day for yourself you need a day just for yourself which can mean also for God in a theistic environment. And, and this is a rule, which is sattvic. And then there comes a man like Jesus and breaks it. Jesus was preaching on the Sabbath day. Jesus was healing the ill on Sabbath day. Jesus was doing all kinds of funny things on the Sabbath day. And he was accused openly by the Jews of the time, You are perverting the law. You are bending the rules. We are told to sit quiet on the Sabbath day. And you, like some sort of hyperactive dude, you keep doing your mission, even on Sabbath. Why don't you hold your horses? And Jesus says, because the Sabbath was made for man, and not men were made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is just a silly rule like any other rule, which is meant to guide your life. But it is not meant to rule you above everything. It can't rule your divine nature. So basically Jesus says, I am above the rule which says that you should hold the Sabbath because I understood it organically. I assimilated it. I am God and I am the creator of this rule actually. So for me this rule does not exist because I am acting in a transcendent way. And therefore Jesus is enlightened not Sattvic. The the Sabbath rule was perhaps a manifestation of Sattva in the Jewish society. And Jesus says since I am Atman, even the Sabbath rule is inferior to me. It's good for those of you who still have to guide yourselves by the rules. But when you don't have to guide yourselves by the rules, I am directly enlightened, I am the spiritual nature. And for that one, Sabbath or no Sabbath, hyperactive or not at all active, It's not what makes the difference. This is why, this is very important because even in the Hindu traditional society, as well as it was in the Jesus' time society and so many others, people lose themselves in the letters of the book. They lose themselves in rules and regulations. And Patanjali says, you have, however, to discriminate that there is something above and that is the pure spirit. The pure spirit cannot be subjected to those. And therefore... Once more, coming to 47, says, or I'm sorry, the 48, he says, by knowledge of the awareness of the difference between Sattva and Purusha, because there is a difference, comes supremacy over all states and forms of existence and omniscience. So, by knowledge, by understanding what is spiritual dogma, and what is actual spirit, because the actual spirit cannot be contained in any rule or regulation, then there comes supremacy over all states and forms of existence, which means indeed then you are ready to take off, then you can transcend, so it's very clear, and omniscience. Omniscience is actually put here also as a symbol, because if you would get omniscience, Omniscience comes together with Omnipotence and Omnipresence. It is the very characteristic of the Divine. God is Omniscient, Omnipotent, which means Almighty, in case you don't get it in that formula, and Omnipresent, which means all-pervasive, ubiquitous, present everywhere at the same time. And therefore, it's not possible to be Omniscient without being Omnipotent and Omnipresent. So in the moment when Patanjali says, and Omniscience, he means omniscience, etc., all those. Therefore, he says, by making samyama, by understanding the difference between sattva and purusha, going at the highest level between the last highest floor of manifestation and the non-manifestation, which is the pure spirit, the transcendent, there comes supremacy over all states of forms of existence, the state of spiritual realization, and omniscience, omnipotence, those which means a divine state of consciousness, a state of Samadhi. Patanjali has spoken about this before, but now he lays again the final punctuation on this subject. And continuing this idea, which is very important in the Indian society, you remember that by the year when Patanjali wrote this, India was, and the Orient generally, was in the throes of a big revolution produced by Buddha. It was the time of Gautama Buddha, who simply came up as a revolt against the Brahmanic society. The Brahmanic society, with its representatives, with its frontline representatives, the Brahmins, and its characteristic, its main characteristic, the caste system, had become rotten, oppressive spoiled decadent at that time once upon a time at the time of Krishna and Mahabharata at the time of Manu and the laws of Manu at the time of Ramayana and of the roots of the Vedic society it was said that that system was viable it was still realistic because the human beings the society and the way those rules were interpreted and applied were actually very different but once that but when the, as the centuries passed, the brahmanism the ancient hindu the hinduism brahmanism started becoming decadent and rotten and people being egoistic the priests took all kinds of privileges they were abusing and uh, doing all kinds of things the kshatriyas the aristocratic class were also misbehaving and thus the society was in the throes of a very putrid form of existence and buddha among others simply broke the chain Simply Buddha said, this is not right. We have to start something new. And thus Buddhism created a new type of society. A new type of world. Patanjali is writing somewhere at the same time. And he also is therefore mentioning it. For some spiritual people, Sattva was more important than Purusha. It is more important to be religiously conformistic. To be conform. Then to be uh, spiritual. A spiritual person is a maverick, is a provocative person, it's a person who bends the rules, It's a per- because he's above the rules, and therefore such a person feels dangerous, uh, incontrollable, people want to have rules. Everybody must, there must be laws in the society. What would we do if we would say, well, there are laws, but they are not valid for Buddha. They are not valid for Jesus. They are not valid for a bunch of very special special people. For those, the laws do not apply. No, no. It gives us a feeling of injustice, of danger. Things are becoming slippery. We have to have something which is valid for everybody. And therefore... Automatically people value sattva and their rules, regulations, more than they value spirituality. Like if you are a swami, you have to be dressed in orange. If not, it's kind of not okay. You are. Why wouldn't it be okay? Because Swami Vivekananda of India, either you put him in a swimming suit or stark naked or dressed in orange or dressed in a fur coat of an Eskimo was the same person and would have done the same thing anyhow. So it wouldn't make any difference what you are dressed into or if you eat something or if you don't eat something. Do you really think that if somebody would have force-fed force Ramakrishna with a, with a piece of fish Ramakrishna would have lost his spirituality and he wouldn't have been spiritual anymore. So basically, what, who would care at that level if you are sattvic or if you are not so sattvic or this? Because spirituality is above the gunas, above the distinctions of nature. And unfortunately, people who don't know, they say, then how should we know? Maybe this person who is dirty and terrible and this and this is very wise after all. And this creates a chaos. We don't have any rules. And that's why we expect that the spiritual person should be dressed in white and eat like an angel and behave like an angel and be sattvic and do this and that. And some spiritual teachers disagreed to this and they said, Bollocks! This is nonsense! This is just a superstitious belief. And therefore, to make the long story short, it is very important to distinguish between Sattva and Purusha. And in the Sutra number 49, after saying that by knowledge of this distinction there comes supremacy of all states, Patanjali insists in the Sutra number 49, the next one, and he says, by Vairagya, which means detachment, so let's use the English word to make it more easy. By detachment, even regarding to that, even regarding to sattva, the seed of bondage is destroyed and kaivalya, or the word used in English would be liberation, is attained. So you have to become detached even to sattva. Sattva is the last attachment. Sattva says, in the last five years, like, we don't know what you were, before you started your spiritual search. Before you started your spiritual search, it is possible that you were quite an animal. All the ignorant, unconscious human beings sometimes behave like animals. It is very possible that you behaved in tamasic, rajasic, sattvic ways mixed all together, and your life and behavior was therefore just a bunch of chaotic influences which we can consider hardly human but okay let's say that's the average human condition but then when you turn spiritual either you went to a religion and you became sufi christian hindu buddhist something or you came to an esoteric path and you became a yogi or something we the yoga teachers we started making you turning you into a sattvic person That's what Swami Vivekananda here is telling to you in the lectures. Be sattvic, be sattvic. It will make your life more easy. It will make obstacles more sweet. You will have success. You will slowly, slowly come close to the borderline of spirit. And thus we preach. And not only I, maybe in this school we are at one half not as fanatic as some other schools and organizations can be you should go to the Hare Krishnas and see what they are or some other organizations the Ramakrishna Vedanta, Ramakrishna Vivekananda Vedanta or others where they can be super scrupulous about these things like if you add a bit of garlic and onion your soul is lost in hell because garlic and onion are not sattvic and therefore you are not leaving a sattvic lifestyle and you've, oh my, oh my, you are endangering your immortal soul and whatever. So, but anyhow, even if we are not that fanatical, scrupulous, perfectionistic, we still advise generally that, hey, sattva is preferable. This is something which you learn in the second month of yoga, in our yoga courses, when we have a lecture about the three gunas <coughs> and other philosophical and metaphysical aspects in yoga. And therefore, we preach that. And then, perhaps, those of you who have been in yoga, spirituality, something for the last five years, it is presumable that you have become, unless you followed some bizarre lineage, it is most probable that you have become more and more sattvic in your diet, in your lifestyle, and so on. So what's happening? Well, actually what's happening is that you start getting blinded by sattva itself because you start getting attached to it, a habit becomes second nature and you, have, you are cultivating sattva so much that you start believing that sattva is it. Like I'm living in a monastery and I'm following, I'm following the rules of the monastery. But if I become a saint, I don't need to follow the rules of the monastery anymore. The rules of the monastery become obsolete for me. I can practice them only as a sacrifice because I want to conform to the social model and thus not to confuse other people. That's what many saints have done. Padre Pio was an enlightened person and obvious, he often had the tendency to go over the limits of the Christian Catholic religion, but eventually he held his horses and he made himself a sort of model Christian so that he doesn't get in conflict with the Vatican and Vatican doesn't accuse him of being a heretic. Because now he didn't really need the rules of the Catholic Church but he preferred to keep them because else he would have created a sect. He would have created a new lineage and by all means he didn't want to do that. And therefore he kind of held his horses for another reason. Not because it was necessary to him as a spiritual practice. And therefore What I am saying is that your organization, your lifestyle, your habits, your sattvic lifestyle can become your second prison. In the beginning, you are imprisoned by ignorance and you are doing all kinds of silly things, chaotic and mixed up. Then you learned about spirituality and hopefully you learned about spirituality from a serious person who told you A, B, C, what is what and what is not, like making clear and very sharp the principles of spirituality as i think we try to do it in this school to distinguish light from darkness and all those things very clearly and then you adjusted your lives and that's congratulations that you do that at least from my standpoint i think that's the right step to take and you have adjusted your lives, and now you have started living according to spiritual standards, you started practicing Yama and Niyama, you start practicing Sattva in your lifestyle, and all the rest. And now Patanjali comes and says, be careful that when you get really high in meditation, when you reach the borderline, even Sattva becomes like a stone on your neck because Sattva belongs to Prakriti, it holds you still in Prakriti, albeit it's a very high level of Prakriti, but still it's not Purusha. Don't mix up the Sattvic rules with spirituality, with pure spirit, because pure spirit is higher than that. And therefore, Patanjali simply says, you have to meditate on the distinction between those, and you have to exert vairagya, detachment, Like let go. Even your very good spiritual rules, in the moment when you reach to the higher level, you have to be detached as to them. You have to be detached as to if you eat sattvic food or you don't eat sattvic food. That doesn't mean that foolishly you should stuff yourself with the wrong things. It simply says you should be detached. Whatever there is, there is. And I could give you examples of such detachment in spiritual life, but we spoke so much about this detachment thing, so it should be quite clear. And therefore he says, detachment even regarding to that sattva is uh, by, by this, the seed of bondage is destroyed and liberation is attained. The last hook which keeps your balloon from soaring is the attachment to sattva. Exactly as Ramakrishna Paramahamsa was attached to Kali. He couldn't reach Brahman because he was attached to Kali. And he had to severe his connection even with Kali, which he adored and which was the cornerstone of his spiritual evolution and realization until that point. He had to let go completely. So Patanjali says, one day when you will feel that you reach the borderline, you will feel like you are going to let go even of sattva. Don't think that you are losing it. Don't think that you are going crazy. It's not wrong. You are losing sattva without losing it because Swami Shivananda and Ramana Maharishi and Ramakrishna and Mananda Mai, they did let go of sattva, conceptually speaking. They went into the unconditional universal consciousness, but their daily life, was still lived, taking account of sattva, and they still had sattvic lifestyles. But they were doing it with detachment, like for them it had not become an obligatory norm. Oh, I have to live my life like this. I have to live my life like this because I'm going to confuse my disciples if I don't. And therefore I have to live my life like this because it has a usefulness for my disciples for the rest of the society, for the planet, for the future, but it's not that I'm keeping it because for me now, it's necessary. I'm clinging desperately to my sattvic lifestyle because if not, I will be lost. No, I won't be lost because I'm found already. So I can never get lost again. I Sattvic lifestyle or non-sattvic lifestyle, it won't make any difference. So internally, you have to be detached. Although externally, you will most probably practice the lifestyle, which is sattvic, because that's the best thing to teach. The sattvic lifestyle helps you to reach there, and therefore it will help the next generations as well. So it's good to preach, although it in itself is not the sufficient condition. It's not a sufficient condition for ensuring enlightenment. Even sattva has to be dropped sooner or later and Patanjali says you will have to exert vairagya even to that and he explains beautifully in the following sutra which is one of the grand classics of yoga quoted by so many authors and which actually is nothing else but an illustration of this the sutra number 49 said by detachment to sattva the seed of bondage is destroyed, like there is no more connection with Prakriti, and there are no more hooks to hold you back, and there is liberation. And in Sutra number 50, this is illustrated beautifully like, how could this be? How far can this go? This is how far it can go. The Sutra number 50 says, even when invited by the Devas, the Devas are the gods of the Hindu mythology, like Indra and the others, and they are the perfect equivalent of the gods of ancient Greece. Indra is the elder of the lightning, and he is the perfect correspondent to Jupiter, to Zeus from the Greek mythology, Jupiter from the Roman mythology, and of course Thor from the Scandinavian mythology. Thor, Jupiter, Zeus, or Indra are one and the same person, it's a deity, a special god, or deva, which has been called different names by different cultures, because different cultures were aware of the existence of some of these formidable superhuman entities, <coughs> which are generically called devas in India in Indian mythology. And the devas of Indian mythology, just like their Greek equivalents, because I cannot even call them brothers, they are not brothers, they are just the same, Uh, just as their Greek equivalent, the gods of of, uh, Indian mythology, they drink Soma, the ambrosia of immortality, so they are forever young, they are beneficial, luminous, very high, but they are not God, they are not Brahman, they are not uh, the Absolute, they are not the ultimate consciousness, they are not Purusha, they are not Paramatman, the soul of the universe, They represent levels of manifestation, not non-manifestation. That's where people make a horrendous confusion. They mix up some gods from mythology with the concept of transcendent god, which is the spirit, the transcendent spirit. Those two don't mix in any way because they represent two completely different categories. And therefore... Here, what Patanjali says is that a yogi, the efforts, the spiritual sadhana, the spiritual efforts of a yogi must continue, must proceed non-stop until the reaching of absolute spiritual realization. You cannot stop meanwhile. And he says again, even when invited by the devas, there should be no attachment or smile of pride because of the possibility of revival of the undesirable. So basically he says, even when invited by the Devas, what does it mean? Is it a metaphor? It basically, Patanjali involves that sometimes great spiritual practitioners, they get invited by the Devas. It's one of the temptations. Perhaps it's the highest and the last temptation. The Devas, are going to invite you to be one of them. If you do yoga for 15 years and your Ajna chakra becomes colossal and other, and other things develop in you colossally, some god or demigod, because there are those, the gods are many things, there are Gandharvas, there are Apsaras, there are so many classes, Shakinis and others and others, the, some deities, out of which the highest are the grand devas, will appear to you in your clairvoyance because at that level you are already beyond physical sight. It's not that somebody comes physically to you. And they will shower flowers over you and say, congratulations, hero. You made it to Devachan. You made it to Mount Olympus. Welcome, good, well done. You did 15 years of yoga and now you are not a man. You are a god already. You have reached to the deva status. You will never be incarnated as a human being on that wretched planet. You have become a Deva. Even if you will live from now, you will live as a Deva. So the Devas come with ambrosia, like the wine of gods, and they say, have a cup. You have reached immortality, you are one of us. You belong to the elite, you belong to the high class now. So congratulations, you made it through your own effort. And Patanjali says, dismiss them. Don't listen to that because even that is sattva. It's not Purusha. It's just a very, very high part of manifestation. But you have not transcended manifestation. You are still a prisoner of samsara. That's not Nirvana yet. It's still from samsara. That's not Brahman. It's still part of Maya, part of the illusion. And therefore Patanjali says, don't stop. He says, even when invited by the devas, there should be no attachment, like, oh my god, I earned the medal of being a god. Then you stop and you become a god. It, it, it is a existential condition which is much superior to the human existential condition, but it is not enlightenment. It is not the spiritual realization. And therefore, Patanjali says, ignore it. There, there should be no attachment or smile of pride. Like you say, ha, am I not good? I made it to Devachan. I'm a deva now, Hehe, he, who You know, who, look at me. If you do that, you lose it. You get attached. No attachment, <clears throat> no smile of pride. Frown even more and say, now comes the final battle. Now really I have to push. Now comes like climbing Mount Everest. You reach the final station then prepare because the last stage is coming and that's the toughest. So therefore, you have to summon all your spiritual force precisely because you have reached to such a high level and you don't want to fall from that high. And therefore, Patanjali is very clear, see? He says, this is the confusion. If you value sattva, you are going to find yourself with the gods in Devachan and say, what a perfect existence. How clean, how pure. How pure how immaculate, how, immoral, how immortal, how moral and ethical, how sattvic existence is here in Devachan. I would like to live with these people, these are my people. Patanjali says, bummer, you just fell for the last trap along the path. <clears throat> That's still Prakriti, it's sattva, it's a high, wonderful level of sattva, but it is to be renounced, you have to renounce that, in the name of everything, in the name of the Divine Consciousness of Purusha, the pure spirit. And that is why he says, even when invited by the Devas, there should be no attachment or smile of pride because of the possibility of revival of the undesirable. Revival of the undesirable. What's the undesirable? If you listened to Patanjali lectures until now, you know. Those are the samskaras, the vasanas, the kleshas, the latent impurities of the mind, which are like seeds of weed, just waiting to sprout and to fill up your garden with weeds. Your garden is your mind. And your garden has somehow been cleansed by the sattvic lifestyle, by meditation, and thus you have reached to the border of the infinite. If you stay you will still have the possibility to get weeds because the weeds are not completely, are never wiped out completely. They are only temporarily eradicated. And therefore, Patanjali says, if you stay in sattva, there is still possibility of revival of the undesirable, which means you can be a god, and a million years later you may fall from that condition and become suffering it's true you would say well can gods fall yes and no it's a very difficult issue in metaphysics to find out if gods can fall and how much but definitely gods are not always happy try to read the myths of the gods from india from greece from Scandinavia and you will see that even these high gods Zeus and the others they are not completely happy they have needs they have desires like Zeus as much of a god as he is he all the time wants to humanize with some women to seduce them to do this and that why can't Zeus just sit quietly and drink his Soma up there and why does he need to fumble around in funny ways it's because still It has not reached the peace, the ultimate peace. And therefore, Patanjali says, that's the peace to which you have towards, which you have to aim. Even the godly state of mind is not good enough. There is something higher than that. In the godly state of mind, there are still residues of samskaras and vasanas, and your spiritual realization is not complete. And that is why he says, There is possibility of revival of the undesirable and that is a clear level. Even in Buddhism, Buddhist authors, I don't know if Buddha himself speaks about that because I haven't encountered that in the discourses of Buddha, but definitely is a part of the old Buddhist tradition. You find it in the Theravada Buddhism of Thailand, Sri Lanka, the Southern tradition, as well as in the Northern one. They are very often mentioned that if a human being in their evolution, if you speed up your evolution and you transcend the human condition, which is by far not the last, it is the last biological state on this planet. It's the highest biological state on this planet, but there may be planets on which there are higher beings than human beings. And definitely in the subtle universes, we have devas and the likes of them, which are superhuman. So to be human is definitely not the last thing before nirvana. Between human and nirvana, there is quite a space. Only the point is that some human beings reach nirvana while still they are in a human body. Which means they just make a shortcut and they go straight to nirvana. End of story. Why prolong the agony? But it is possible that you being in a human condition, sometimes you are going to just cross Half of the path to nirvana you are going to do things which are spiritual strong high deep and yet you will not make it to nirvana then you will become a demigod or a god a deity a deva or a small deva a minor deva but still you can become that there exists a processing of buddhist literature of some sutras from Buddhist literature again not ascribed to buddha himself but some philosophical like abhidharma kosha and others ascribed to some great uh, buddhist commentators nagarjuna and others later enlightened beings in buddhism which describe very clearly that a human being evolving can become even the master of a solar system like surya deva the sun god which is one of the gods one of the devas surya deva The sun god, Apollo for the Greeks, is for our solar system. So the question is that Suryadeva, the sun god of this solar system, where was he five million years ago? Where does he come from in evolution? This spirit that guides the sun, which is the spirit behind the sun. He has a personal history. He hasn't always been there. Maybe he has been there for five billion years as long as the sun existed. Or ten, but before being this responsibility, before being given this responsibility, that the Creator said, in this match, in this play, you are going to be the sun god of that solar system. It's yours. Before that, what was he? Obviously, every spirit comes from a long, long, long evolution. Therefore, it is very possible that Surya Deva of today, once upon a time, was a human being or some other being on some other planet, somewhere in this universe. And therefore, you yourselves one day can become a Suryadeva in some solar system in this universe, which means a largely superhuman spirit, but not yet Nirvana, not yet a Buddha. Therefore, a Buddha is much bigger than Suryadeva, is higher than Suryadeva. It can be that Suryadeva has some incredible powers, Cities which a Buddha might not have that's something else but in terms of spiritual height a Buddha is definitely higher than Surya Deva because Buddha has reached Nirvikalpa Samadhi Nirvana, Enlightenment while Surya Deva not yet in spite of great great advancement and great great power and therefore uh, there is a book excellent reading for you if you lay hands on it by a guy called Gielerup, I forgot the other name, I don't know why I knew it, Hans, I think, or something, Gielerup, a Dane, a Danish writer, and he wrote a book which is called Kamanita, or the Pilgrim, Kamanita, Kamanita the Pilgrim. That book is a romantic processing, it's exactly like the books of Hermann Hesse. Hermann Hesse wrote a book which is called Siddhartha, and which is just a parallel to the life of the Buddha only that he doesn't speak about Buddha, he speaks about another young man who runs away from home and lives with the Samans and finally finds enlightenment and it's a kind of paraphrase to the life of the actual Buddha. There was a fashion in those days, writers from the generation of Hermann Hesse and others, and this Gellerup is one of them, they wrote uh, this kind of spiritual literature. Gellerup chose To write a a parable to buddhist mysticism to buddhist metaphysics in which kamanita uh, this hero of the book kamanita the pilgrim is evolving according to buddhist uh, methods and eventually he doesn't reach nirvana but he becomes like the ruler of a solar system or something like this it's a very thrilling book and therefore this is what patanjali alludes to an evolution which is formidable but not yet taken to the last or at least to the necessary step because this is not even the last step but at least it's the first necessary step this enlightenment, this reaching of nirvikalpa this reaching of atman, of the self and therefore we are stopping at the sutra number 50 tonight there are still four sutras to go they will be easy to go but there is no more time tonight there are four sutras to go in which Patanjali Uh, until now, was referring, therefore, to the distinction between sattva and the transcendent spirit, and thus, he simply says, even the existential condition of the devas is not the answer to your quest. It is not the answer to the spiritual problem. As tempting as that can be, it is still less than what you aspire after next time we are going to finish the these sutras rather quickly and move into chapter 4 the final chapter and the shortest chapter at the same time of the Yoga Sutra with this we have finished as far as we could go tonight we have elucidated a few more sutras now let us perform again 3 to 5 minutes of meditation on Ajna Chakra to let this knowledge sink in and settle down and thus so that we can conclude beautifully this presentation of more sutras from Patanjali.